there's no clear path for getting into venture. I rely heavily on a network of angel investors and former entrepreneurs. When you bring someone on board as a partner, you should see it a bit like marrying someone. How do you evaluate companies at this stage? Ultimately, it is about the founders I'm working with. I try to be a call away from the guys on the team. I have a hard time telling people no. The best entrepreneurs have a really succinct way of articulating their idea. I'm looking at the quality of the articulation of the product or service. Hello, welcome to Venture Confidential, a series of interviews with top minds in venture capital. I'm your host, Peter Chapman. As always, if you've got questions about Heavybit or are interested in being a guest on this podcast, email me at vc at heavybit.com. All right, Max, welcome to Venture Confidential. Thank you, Peter. It's good to have you here. You're our first non-Silicon Valley guest on the podcast. I definitely want to hear about the investment scene in Berlin, but I'd love to start with you. How did you get into venture? Yeah, so first of all, thanks for having me. And I don't know if it's a good thing to be the first sort of European or non-American here on the ground. So let me let me just give you a bit of my perspective on, on you know kind of the the scene I'm working in and and what I'm seeing. How did I get to venture? You know, I, I think generally there's no sort of clear path for getting into venture. So, you know, I studied economics, I, I went to work at a you know private equity consulting firm in London. And during my third year, and things got sort of repetitive over time, you know, sort of same projects or same type of projects. And I ran into one of the most prolific European angel investors who was an angel investor in Skype and a couple other very renowned companies. And you know, we sat down for coffee and he said, Why why don't you sort of stop doing this bullshit consulting work? And and there's a team sort of spinning out and you know, kind of setting up a small seed fund for you know large publishing company and and do you think this is interesting so i met up with those guys and basically had no idea what i was going to get myself into it was a 30 million fund it was you know two lps which had a strategic interest in that fund and we were able to invest into consumer facing businesses and for me it was really literally Getting to know the A to Z of, of venture investing, you know, we there was no portfolio strategy, there was nothing. We did some growth investments, we did one incubation, there was there were seed investments. It was a bit all over the place. I think mm-hmm. in hindsight it has worked out fine. There, you know, they got their money back, it, it went all right. And but after two and a half, three years, I, I ran into one of the founding partners of Earlybird, which was a renowned or is a renowned uh, Series A tech venture fund. Out of you know Berlin and, and Munich, and they asked me whether I want to sort of join and join it up. So that's how I you know in 2010 I joined them. I was with them for five years, and then one observation was that the market has changed. On the one hand, I saw these micro funds in the U.S. emerged on the sort of you know 2007, eight, nine, and some of the you know now really renowned micro fund brands taking over sort of the seed space and investing heavily. On the West Coast and also on the on the East Coast, and and that really hadn't happened in in Europe, and we had missed out on a few interesting companies, because we saw them really early on. But you know we we thought they will come back later, right? Because we do Series A, and actually they didn't come back. So I felt that there was an opportunity for me to start something new, and I took some time off um, after five years, and you know became father of first daughter, but then. Um, also, sort of calibrated my thoughts about what I want to build, and the product now is System One. System One is a pre-seed fund, and you know, sort of obviously telling you more about it. But that's sort of how I got into venture and how it played out over the last couple of years. Cool. 
Tell me more about System One. What does it mean to be pre-seed? So System One is a product for entrepreneurs. It is basically providing technical and product-driven teams with the first initial money. So I think of the investments or the checks I'm writing as initial money to founders. It can be alongside angel investors or maybe other institutional investors. The thinking behind it is to enable founders to get to a certain first validation point. You know, with a you know prototype or first type of you know beta version of a product, and then see you know whether their hypothesis is actually becoming real and that there is something which should be followed and and basically you know try to try to sort of follow a path into you know the real sort of venture world. Yeah, and so there are instances or companies I might see where we all sort of set out on, on a journey but where it doesn't make sense to continue you know, building that product or pursuing that path. And others where it's very clear that this is becoming a clear sort of venture case uh, can be you know, kind of a, a big company. And so, yeah, I do write checks or investments but, you know, between $200,000 and $400,000, sometimes even a little bit less. And you know it can be alongside a bunch of people, and you know the average round size I've subscribed to is seven hundred fifty k to a million dollars. Are you investing primarily in European based companies, or do you? Well, it's funny because you know the reason I'm here in SF is I just closed uh, a small investment into a seed company being based out here in SF. Where I had a prior relationship with that company and founder, and been following them, and and you know so the the co-investor, the, actually the lead investor in that round, is is someone I you know trust very much, and you know they've been um, following that founder and the company for a longer time. So that's an example of a US-based company. I'd say you know it's it's very early, it's very early days for System One. So I'd say that probably eighty percent of my investments are Northern European-based. The first one, Berlin-based company. Another one is a UK-based company. But if I feel that there is a very strong relationship with people here on the ground, you know, co-investors or the entrepreneurs, where I feel that I'm not being, you know, adverse selection, or would qualify as adverse selection, you know, stupid money from Europe, I will take a very serious approach at looking at the company and thinking about whether that fits the strategy of the one. How do you evaluate companies at this stage? A lot comes down to the team. I mean, assessing a certain market idea opportunity is core to what I do, and getting a really quick feeling of where this could lead to, right? But ultimately, it's it is about the founders I'm working with assessing their ability to be able to set out on the journey they're describing, but most importantly, also really sort of trying to understand how they've worked in the past, what they've done in the past, how they, you know, what kind of characters are there. So, I do a lot of referencing. And unsolicited referencing, I think, is something everybody does and is, is core to what we do. Mm-hmm. But especially at this early stage, it's important. But it's not just like you know writing checks and betting on something, right? Okay, so you were saying you, you look at the team, you do a lot of referencing, and you're interested in working with companies that are trying to prove there's an opportunity. So you're at this very sort of seminal stage of a company's growth. Tell me a little bit about your involvement during that early period? Well, I mean, one of the key realizations, and having been doing this for a bunch of years, but still, you know, early days for me, but is that it's very hard to have a you know huge impact at this early stage uh-huh. um, as an investor. I think there are many, 
many different aspects where you can be very helpful to a founding team. But ultimately, when it comes down to product strategy, early ideas around biz dev and these sort of things, it depends a lot on the team, right? The team is driving that, the entrepreneurs are driving that. So I think of myself and System One as someone who's able to give the guys guidance, always sort of give them back their perspective on the original path they set out on, help them to get in front of the right people, try to open doors, and work with my network and, and help them to get in front of certain people. I often, when I you know, do the diligence with a team or they do the diligence on me, I say, look, why don't you use this time as a test phase and basically just bombard me with questions, ask me as many questions as you have and try to find out how I'm working and how it can be helpful to certain things. And then you know, when there are questions I can't answer, I tell them really quick, I can't answer this, right? So I'm not, I'm not you know, I, I try to be mindful about their time and I try to be a call away from the guys on the team. So, but thinking about also the companies now, which, you know, with which I'm working with right now, it's, it varies a bit. So there are companies which need a lot of attention and have a lot of questions. It could be sort of around a variety of questions around institutionalization, Around sort of you know thinking about building a product which is ready for the next round of financing, shaping the equity story, biz dev, etc. So some teams need more handholding than others, and some teams simply have more interest in working with you than others. Mm-hmm. I don't want to push them in a corset where I feel like we got to do this and this and this. The way I think about it is we need to adapt to their needs and. When I invest in a company, we sit down and try to have a very clear understanding of what the next six, nine, twelve months will look like and how we are going to interact with each other. And that's important for me. But I also request from the founders that they drive that process in a way as you know, kind of to the extent they need it. So what does a fruitful founder investor relationship look like for you? A couple of things. The the relationship should have a very progressive and proactive nature and good karma. I think that's very important and you can sense that. I try to sort of figure out how my interaction is being led by the other person on the on the table. I you know, I take a very deep interest in what that person or that team is building. So when I am devoting my time and system one's money at a company, I take a very deep interest at their success, but also ultimately in the person. So I want to understand how they take, what makes them take, how, how their characters function. And what's important for me is that they also take an interest in System One and Max. So that it's you know it's a relationship which is based on trust, but also on on basically you know that people can you know understand that they can rely on me, but also that they need System One at the table. Yeah, it's important that. You know, there is this mutual beneficial interest in each other. I think one of the things I really like about working at Heavybit is that we have a team here, and that allows us to do a little bit of divide and conquer, right? I know that if someone wants to talk about community building, I'll send them to Jesse. If they want to talk about developer experience, that's a great conversation to have with James. What are some of the challenges of having a one-man shop? What do you do when you you're faced with a question that is outside your domain? It's never easy as a one man show, but I mean there there's a history or sort of an idea of you know why I've set out on this trip as a single general partner for now. 
But what I do is I try to surround myself with certain people who have certain expertises and have experiences I can rely on, right? So when there is a product topic or when there is a you know back end engineering topic or where is there you know customer growth, etc. There are, you know, not just friends but people I've worked with in the past who where I can rely on them. And I without them I couldn't do it, right? Because it's like you you need to have a network where you can reach out to friends and, and people and, and professionals you've worked with and understand you know what they think about a certain problem. So venture is a very, you know, some people define it as as a team sport, and that's the way I want to see it. And also thinking about a partnership going forward. But right now it's it's the right setup for what I'm doing at this stage and and hopefully I can be helpful to them and provide them with the right contacts. But also I, I don't try to you know impose that I know everything or you know that's uh, not not who I am. And I think people who work with me and the companies who work with me know that. Thoughts on broadening the partnership? Do you see System One ever growing beyond just Max? Yeah, certainly. I mean, this is something I'm thinking about a lot. I've been part of a larger team and partnership of a firm which has been around for some time, and I think maneuvering interests and characters is is a very sensitive topic. And so I, I've just grown mindful that you know when you bring someone on board as a partner. You you should see it a bit like you know marrying someone and getting into a very long you know long term relationship, and that's just something I don't want to negate the fact that you know I don't want to stay numb to any potential partners or people I can bring on board. So that's the most important topic for me to not be in my own silo or echo chamber. But you know think about the right addition. Complementary skill set, but also someone who can become part of what System One is and what it is starting to be. It's very early days. So, to answer your question, it's not the idea to leave just the Max legacy as a single GP and that's it. No, it's it's about building a firm and bringing someone on over time. Yeah. Cool. What do you think that first partner will look like? I can't answer it. It's it's a hard question. The Sometimes I think about someone who's been, you know, sort of deeply entrenched in engineering and, you know, sort of comes with a very technical background. Sometimes I have other ideas of, you know, someone who's coming from a commercial side and and I think it will over time you'll you know, I've thought so much about it. I think this has to happen naturally, right? So you cannot just pin down the qualifications you're looking out for, obviously it's important to look for certain, you know, kind of characteristics and principles and values. Um, they need to be there. But but I think thinking about the background of a person, I don't want to nail it down now and tell you this is go, going to how this is how it's going to look like. We'll have this conversation in two years once you've found that person. <laughs> we'll get them on Venture Confidential. Yeah, let's let's do that. Yeah. I want to go back to to Berlin. You know, one of the reasons I connected to you is because your name had come up a bunch, and I have sort of this distant vision of a real burgeoning startup scene in Berlin, and sort of an especially vibrant startup scene around enterprise technology, developer tools. What's it like over there? It's a vibrant scene. The other kind of view is though that we've been all riding this wave of you know, there's this amazing vibrant scene, and and Berlin is one of the hubs um, around the globe. I think what I've come to observe is that it just simply needs time to live up to those expectations, right? Mm. So, 
I started at Early Bird in 2010 and was actually part of the the Hamburg team. You know, different city had a history in you know gaming and agency business, etc. And we've spent during the first year, I spent like one day, two days a week in Berlin and saw the scene really rise up there. And so it made so much sense for us to move offices and the whole team, close down Hamburg and move to Berlin and you know, be one of the first funds on the ground and not just coming in for a day or two on a weekly basis, but really being part of the scene, spending time with founders you know, meeting them, you know, morning for coffee or going out for a beer, or you know, and being part of all the meetups and what's happening there right now. So, to a certain extent, I and and my at that time former partners, we've been all riding this wave, and we've seen you know great companies come out of it. There's certainly the rocket internet part to the story, where uh, rocket internet set up by the Summer Brothers have managed to create a big firm and entity, which is actually creating a lot of new entrepreneurs who at some point said we've learned a lot through Rocket yeah, in, in a certain expertise and then they venture out and start eventually their own business. And then you have other originals, companies like SoundCloud or ResearchGate, you know, Auto One Group, pretty unknown, and, and a bunch of under, obviously Wunderlist, a company we invested in in the past, which is bossed by Microsoft, and so all these successes or companies which have grown over the time have created other teams which have spun out or have actually paid back a bit of money to angel investors or you know former entrepreneurs who can then actually invest back into the cycle. So I'm extremely bullish on Berlin. I do say though with that I venture out to other cities in Europe and especially also German cities where I feel there's lots of talent and really good talent quietly operating and building businesses. Mm. And then if you look at the statistics and sort of yearly cohorts of European outcomes, you see a clear trend, right? And I think that is what matters. We when we invest today, we look at outcomes in, you know, six to eight, nine years' time, or more likely sometimes even ten years' time. So I think and looking at exits over the last five, seven, eight years coming out of the Northern European ecosystem, but also Berlin. It's it's very promising. So I'm I'm a big advocate of the scene in general. My first investment was you know through System One was a Berlin-based investment, and so yeah, that's uh, I mean there, but and that's that's what I think is important also to the to the people who listen here is there are other hops right there. There's I mean Helsinki is known for you know gaming, and then you've got Stockholm, Copenhagen, Munich is very much known for deep tech. Then you've got obviously London, who's still one of the TV centers in the European market, and then the Paris scene is going dramatically because there has been a huge influx of capital and supporting you know young founders. And so, at the same time, Portugal, Lisbon, Barcelona, Madrid. So I, I you, you can I can go on and name all of them. But there's uh, so in general, I'm pretty I'm pretty optimistic about the whole ecosystem in Europe. Yeah. yeah uh, so you said, and I'm not sure I got the full story you said. You said if you look at the cohort of Berlin-based exit, it's a promising story. Can you say more about that? Yeah, I mean, so when I reference the cohorts, I look at them as European uh, on a European level. Sure. Yeah. So if you if you look at companies being valued over a billion euros and look at them 2010 to now, you'll see a clear trend, right? Uh, 2010, 11, 12. You know, you had one, two, three companies per year. Now you have multiple ones of them. 
And I think that is is becoming clearer and clearer over time. And I've been advocating that story to you know limited partners, investors, and venture funds for some time. And I just think you can see a clear trend there. And obviously, right now we we can go through a couple of companies if it interests you. But I'm I'm just saying that you know each year produces a greater number of outcomes and, and returns, or you know still a lot of them are paper valuations, but you can see that now. Yeah. Got it. And you mentioned this broader ecosystem. How do you get beyond the the Berlin bubble? How do you connect to companies in Finland and Paris? You know, getting above the cacophony of noise, I think one element is important. You gotta decline investments or investment opportunities really fast. Mm. And that means that on the other side you're you're winning time or gaining time to spend that time at, you know. Other stuff, which is obviously deal flow, deal management, portfolio management, due diligence. What I do is I rely heavily on on a network of angel investors and former entrepreneurs who kind of filter things and send them my way or point me towards certain things which are happening or meetups and etc. Um, otherwise, I couldn't just looking at the breadth of companies. I couldn't you know see everything, and I can't right. So I think it's. Um, Relying on that type of network, but also spending time in a variety of these cities. So what I do is, I'm probably away once or twice per week, where I spend a dedicated, you know, one to maybe a bit more time days in a city, and where I meet a couple of companies, try to do a little talk, go to universities. Especially when you operate at pre-seed, you you got to spend time at. I think you got to spend time at universities and. And uh, see what is coming out there, and that means that you will see a lot of ideas and things which are not ripe, and and too early, and and not fitting the strategy. But then, but every other time, there's something interesting coming out of it. So, you know, you might not have heard of Karlsruhe, which is a city of you know kind of um, in, in the southern part of Germany, which has an incredibly good technical university. Mm. I wouldn't, you know, say it's the MIT of Germany, but but certainly uh, the degree of talent coming out there and the quality of talent is just phenomenal. So I spend time there. I go to other areas, and I believe you got to spend time away from the noise. And it's very hard to you know cut through noise, and you get distracted by interesting financings happening where a lot of people team up and where you think, oh shit, you know, there's certain FOMO involved, etc. And but I, I feel that, you know, for for the strategy I'm doing, you you gotta find things which are a bit off the beaten track. That's interesting. Can we talk a little bit about your funnel? Yeah, sure. So how many companies do you try to fund a year? So I try to fund between six to ten companies a year. And how many companies do you talk to a year? So looking back at nine month operating and 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 having you know looked at the numbers, I probably spoke to three hundred companies. Wow. Okay. Let's be honest. I think it's very important to have a clear funnel. But what is also important is that I don't think quantity matters in this in this game. And that shouldn't sound arrogant, but I I feel that it's you know sort of you have to be good at pre-selecting. The right type of conversations and and you know kind of companies you want to want to spend time with, so you know out of those three hundred probably I spoke with you know most of them for just a very very short time. What's important is that you then actually boil it down to the companies you really want to spend time with, right? So and and that's just you know I don't know a couple handfuls. What allows you to filter quickly? 
it's a variety of things, right? I think most importantly, I'm I'm looking at the quality of the articulation of the vision of the product or service. So I find that irrespective of how big this company can be or how big this vision is and how far out it still is, I find that the best entrepreneurs have a really succinct way of articulating their idea in, in, a, in a crisp manner. So I try to look out for that and, and try to understand whether I can you know, understand what they're actually trying to build, right? And even if it's a very difficult topic, I try to make them tell me what, what in simple words, tell me what's the product, what are you building, how, how do you art, and then you over sort of an exchange and the articulation, you can, I feel that there's something to it and there's a, you know, kind of the quality of, of how to articulate your vision is important. Then I look at obviously the team and, and their backgrounds. I try to understand how technical the team is and what's the quality of these people working on a particular project. Have they experienced a certain problem in the past, or is it something which they sort of come out of, out of the blue because they, you know, just were looking for some kind of company they just want to create? Yeah, or are people really on a mission? And you understand that and can filter this through really quickly. You can do this through a conversation with the entrepreneurs, but also on paper. I think how people actually lay out their idea in a deck is something which which varies dramatically. I think. I like this. You've got this like a two to three percent acceptance rate. You're really good at saying no quickly. How do you actually hand a startup that rejection? I'm really bad at rejections. It's one of my weak spots. So I know these conversations have to happen. Mm-hmm. But I want to be honest, I have a hard time telling people no because I wouldn't say that I'm so devoted, but I'm I'm really so always so impressed by founders actually setting out on these you know, building something so early on. So I just don't want to give you an intellectual argument why, you know, why it's hard for me to say no. But I honestly feel that if someone sets out on building a new company and a new product, I feel that it's so hard. And this these early days of building a company are really hard. So for me, you know, on the other side, I feel always really bad saying someone telling someone no. And that's just my emotional reasoning here. But I guess what's important is that, first of all, you got to filter through real quick, is that maybe not fitting the stage you're operating in or the space you're operating in, or you know, are there some sort of you know, aspects to a certain company which are just not fitting your structure and, and your core principles of, of investing? And then you got to tell them. And I think that is something you can tell somebody really, really quick. I mean, I, I published the first of just one piece on on why I set out on building System 1 and gives a bit of a perspective of what I'm looking for at which sort of type of stage I'm operating, etc. And so if people don't get that right away, it's always a bad signal. But but then there are these like gray zones where you feel ah there's it's interesting. It's like you're sort of on the verge of you know leaning towards a no. And and I think over time one learning is that these things don't get better, right? Mm-hmm. So then you have to be really clear and I know that some people say you always got to voice the honest truth, and um, you know when you decline an opportunity, when you feel that there, there's certain type of weakness within the team, it's very hard to voice that. And I still try to figure out what the best way is to tell them this. 
And maybe as a last comment, I think a lot about whether venture is at all right for a company, right? So I often decline founders not to raise venture or any money at this point in time because I feel that they are better off at remaining autonomous and, and remaining their degree of independence and working as a small, nimble team on something. So surprisingly, often I'm telling people, hey, look, I just think this is super interesting. I'd love to work with you guys, but I just don't think you should raise right now because you can survive on a low burn rate another couple of months. You guys are apt to maneuver you know, these hard days without any money, I think. And you'll see that you'll get to that point of uh, hopefully you know, building a first prototype and then maybe you know, raising money. Cool. You said saying no was hard, which frankly seems like a, a good signal. What are some other things that you're trying to get better at as an investor? I think my time management is something I need to work on. I consider myself, in certain degrees of my my life, as a discipline and principle. But when it comes to time management, I I just I'm sometimes not as good as I would want to be. And so, if I look at my week, and you know my early mornings, my evenings, etc., private time with my family, etc., maneuvering these things is still hard. And system one is just on the beginning, so it's still you know early days, day one sort of. And so, the most or the most challenging piece in time management I'm, I'm facing right now is how can I be still helpful to people where I don't think that they're fit for what I'm doing, but where I can contribute to the community or contribute just simply you know, back to their idea where I feel it's, it's not the right fit. So I am often try to meet with people where I instantly know that this is nothing for system one, but where I just think, hey, you know, this is, is part of the scene I'm operating in, it's part of the ecosystem. I want to give them feedback on their equity story, on how to fundraise or, you know, how to get a certain validation point, how to network better into the right sort of, you know, people. So, and that sometimes is to my detriment is like, means that I have less time on other things, which are maybe sometimes a bit more core and important to what you know, what I need to do and need to deliver. So that, you know, juggling that is is not that easy sometimes. But I think over time I'm getting better. I empathize with this. (laughs) You know, one of the things that's come up in a couple of recent episodes is this idea that to be an effective networker, investor, you sort of have to pay it forward, right? You absolutely have to give time and help with no expectation that you get anything in return. And, and that those sort of activities might have a long-term payoff, but you can't only invest in people that you're literally investing in. But on the other side of that, you know, you've got this sort of infinite list of people you can be helping. And I find that it can be really hard to figure out the balance between you know being that nice guy, that sort of generating good network, and making sure that you're adding value to stuff you need to focus on. What are some tips? How do you navigate this? I myself have to develop some sort of clarity on this right so it is i'm still learning in that respect or in that context and so what i do is i sometimes try to just simply look back at a week and look at what did i spend my time on and what what did i do well or how could i have been more effective that week or should i have spend less time on something and more time on something so i i do look back at this i think 
I, I've had this conversation over this weekend here on a hike outside of San Francisco with someone who actually told me about his system of like how to label his calendar and certain, you know, uh, he, he labels each meeting or what he ever does. He always labels certain things and in, into, you know, buckets. And so could be personal or it could be something, you know, non-work related, but it also, when it's work, he has a certain, you know, schematic of how to label things. He showed it to me and I felt, whoa, this is extremely helpful. Am I the guy who, you know, who'd be able to implement it and be as, you know, sort of disciplined to do this every, you know, on every, you know, scheduling and appointment, etc. I don't know, but it was really fascinating to see how his time pans out. And he then looks back at a month and says, look, I usually I spend two thirds of my time working with clients, but this month I was just too much involved in like op stuff and, you know, he runs a service business. So it's consulting business. So, you know, this could be an idea. I think I want to, as much as I can, I want to stay open to people. And even if they don't come always with, you know, warm introductions, it's, I just want to stay open and, and be helpful. I sometimes have to, you know, cut them short or stop after 20 minutes, half an hour or so. The mantra I follow is, is that good things will come out of it eventually. It sounds very abstract, but I know this, right? So maybe not tomorrow, maybe not next week, but I, I know this, just happens. Yeah, this is such a theme. I, I interviewed this woman last week who said, you know, I was raised a Hindu, and so I sort of grew up with this idea of karma, and I fully subscribe to the idea that if, if I do good things, uh, those efforts will, will circle back and reward me eventually. Yeah, so good karma is a, is a big topic. I think that's also how I want to run System One and how I think I, of, of me running it. Good karma is, is essential, and the people I surround myself with and work with, you know, one of the prerequisites is that you know it's good karma people. And you know, if I may, it's it's what I call the asshole free zone. Yeah, you <laughs> you gotta surround yourself with people who can teach you something, who can give back, who give good energy. You mentioned earlier that you you have two fairly young children and you travel a bunch for work. How do you find the right balance of you know spending time with family and the sort of 24-7 VC job? It's certainly a job where you you can drive your own timeline and schedule. So this is obviously, you know, I'm, let's be honest, I'm I'm not saying that I'm you know, I'm, I don't get my the, the time and FaceTime with my family and, and you know the private life. I, I need to over the weekends. I need to I try to wind down or at least recharge and you know and then and then I know that the machine goes up and running again. Like in you know late afternoon on Sunday, I'm starting going back at emails, thinking about stuff which is coming up next week. I try to be really structured and you know I need downtime and so that's something I try to get my sleep and I need a fair amount of that. It's a question also of organization, and I'm I'm not always as good as that, but m- my wife is way better at it. So it's like you know I think it, we complement each other in that um, in that regard. And then certainly it gives you you know you for instance the other week a company you know also know I mean we the, the entrepreneurs are working so hard. So when we interact, we literally we have calls at, which start 11 p.m. and last till 1am at night and it's like we we don't have that on a weekly or bi-weekly basis but sometimes I know that these guys are so underwater that when we actually get down to working on things that it's it's very late right but that means that sometimes you know do these things and then you are way more flexible of like you know thinking about how you want to you know kind of do certain things throughout the week and be there for family etc so cool any advice for folks that are beginning their career adventure I think 
it's a long-term business, and I needed a couple years to realize that. So I was part of this, I, I call it the honeymoon phase of getting into venture. It's where you think, oh, it's high five, you manage other people's money, you can invest into exciting things. Things are at that point in time always hyped and are really interesting and looking really interesting on the surface. But I think it just takes a long, long time to see, you know, realizations, successes, things which don't work out. So I, you know, advise everybody to don't overhype the job of venture. Yeah, I think it's like it needs a it's need a pretty sane and healthy look at, at this business. And then I find it very important to derive some sort of own positioning or get to develop an own positioning and, and not strategy, but an own you know, line of thought around certain topics or certain underlyings in, 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 this, in this business. So that means that you got to be a self-starter, but at the same time, you need to have an opinion on things and not follow the herd and, and always stay open to certain things which might be a bit crazy or feel crazy, but are on the outer rim and could be really interesting over time. So not staying numb to that and cutting through the noise. I also find it more interesting that I've learned to set aside a bunch of times during the week to read up on stuff, on a lot of stuff. And that's where I actually don't spend anything, you know, I, I just read on, you read papers, articles, try to not get distracted on uh, you know on email or anything else and it helps me a lot to shape my own thinking around certain topics and not just you know concentrate myself the whole time on you know networking or what else I could do during the time so you know what should i be reading right now well right now i mean the last two weeks i spent reading while you know sort of cryptocurrencies is a big topic right now um anything around initial coin offerings and and Ethereum and that has, you know, has gotten so much attention. It's crazy, but but at the same time, so many good people have published interesting articles and opinions on it. So I enjoyed reading a bunch of articles from people who've been in that scene for ages now, and and who you know give their balanced perspective on a market which is now so heated. So what I do in the mornings, I screen my Twitter stream, and then I bookmark five, six, seven good posts and articles, put them into my pocket app and then read it later um, during the day at some certain point where I put aside a certain time where I read on things. If folks want to find you, where can they find you? So they can find me under um, system1.vc or max at system1.vc. You can also find me under Max Clausen on Twitter, at Max Clausen. And if they want to find me physically, every morning uh, between 8 and 9, the, the likelihood of finding me in a Kreuzberg cafe it's pretty high. There is one where I actually hang out most of the time for my first coffee of the day. It's, and I will reveal it here, but it's a secret, guys. It's a Cafe Neun in Kreuzberg, attached to Markthalle Neun, and that's my usual hangout in the morning. Great. And what sort of startups do you want to talk to? I want to talk to technical founders, product-driven founders, who are on the on the set of a building initial version of their product and service. Literally at their earliest infancy of a company's lifetime, you know, I'm happy to. I'm not limiting myself just on location on Germany or Northern Europe. So I'm I'm pretty open. I obviously won't do stuff in Asia or Africa. So there is a limit, right? It's Northern Europe and and and, and U.S. Great. So technical Europe or U.S.-based pre-seed companies should find Max at Cafe Noen. Right. And we'll post this in the episode description, so yeah. you can look it up there. 
All right, Max, thank you so much for joining us today. It was a real pleasure. Thank you, Peter. Thanks for listening to this episode of Venture Confidential. Venture Confidential is brought to you by Heavybit. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out our library, home to great educational talks by top investors, entrepreneurs, and other industry leaders.